Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Chris Santiago, Amy Cesara, Heidi E. Eldridge, and Brandon Summer. You will now hear Chris Santiago provide introductions. I landed on Wednesday, and um, I drove past the Washington Monument, and um, my cab driver, um, I, I said to the cab, actually it was a Lyft, and I said to the Lyft driver, I said, um, 72 degrees, it's really hot. And she said, you know, it's, you know why it's hot, don't you? And I said, why? And she said, because we're all going to hell. And, um, so when we first conceived of this panel, um, uh, we were thinking about the fact that um, the outgoing president, Barack Obama, um, had designated more national monuments and national parks than any president before him. Um, he actually had, uh, there's, there were 121 protected areas um, known as national monuments, which is not necessarily what you typically think. You think of the Washington Monument as, as, as one example of a national monument, but there's a lot of open public spaces too that um, are important historically, culturally, um, that are um, indigenous and native sites that are sacred as well. Um, towards the end of his tenure, for example, President Obama designated the Stonewall Inn in New York City as the, very, the country's first national monument to commemorate lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender rights. Um, and also in December, he designated uh, a site uh, in Utah, the Bears Ears Monument, which I, I believe Hyde will discuss later on. Um, and um, it's 300,000 acres of land um, that's important historically and culturally which I believe that Senator Chaffetz was interested in trying to sell uh, more recently, but that bill was taken off when um, his Instagram feed was yeah. <laughs> overwhelmed by um, people, including hunters, who wanted to um, tell him to shove that idea somewhere else. Um, but the reason why I wanted to bring up that anecdote about the, uh, the cab driver is that um, our priorities, um, our concerns have shifted um, Here's the Washington Monument, and here is Trump Tower in New York, which, God forbid, that, that becomes a national monument, but who knows what will happen. Um, but we have a, a wonderful panel of poets to talk about this. The reason we want to talk about national monuments is because we're talking about spaces, um, public spaces, cultural spaces, um, spaces that capture our imaginations. Um, and we literally are struggling and physically risking, um, people risking their lives over these spaces. Um, I should mention that Craig Santos Perez, who was written in the program, um, originally was be part of our panel, but he could not travel to Washington, D.C., um, and we are very, very uh, grateful and fortunate to have Kevin Prufer join us as well, so um, I'll, I'll introduce him um, when it, at, towards the end of the panel when he'll speak, but thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Um, so without further ado, um, we'll, we'll um, move on to our first speaker. I'll introduce, um, here's Stonewall in, by the way, um, I will introduce um, Brandon Som, and um, Brandon is the author of Babel's Moon and the Tribute Horse, and the winner of the 2015 Kate Tufts Discovery Award. A former fellow at the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, he's an assistant professor in the literature department at the University of California, San Diego. Um, thank you, Brandon, for joining us. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Excited 
to be on this panel. Uh, thanks again, for Chris, for organizing things. Um, I guess we need to... Thanks, everyone. Um, in 1965, uh, can everyone hear me all right? Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, in 1965, President Lyndon Johnson used executive powers afforded to him by the controversial 1906 Antiquities Act to name Ellis Island part of the Statue of Liberty National Monument. At the signing on May 11, 1965, Johnson celebrated the island as a beacon of opportunity, a symbol of freedom for millions. He went on to state that the 16 million immigrants that entered through the island enriched the American melting pot and made us not merely a nation, but a nation of nations. Earlier in the fall of that same year, Johnson had used the Statue of Liberty as the site for the signing of the 1965 Immigration Act, one in a series of historic acts, including the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, and the Voting Rights Act, that worked to prohibit discrimination. Johnson's decision to use the Statue of Liberty, a national monument since 1924, demonstrates the ways in which monuments have been used symbolically to establish, declare, and proliferate national narratives that purport ideals of democratic inclusion. Monument from the Latin monere, to remind suggests that such symbolic actions will be memorialized, remembered, and so with monumentalizing comes to the acts of national memory and national memorizing. With Donald Trump's recent ban on immigration from seven predominantly Muslim countries, an executive order that has now been blocked by the federal courts and that that block was upheld yesterday with the unanimous three to zero uh, decision. Absolutely, for sure. We see in Trump's ban a complete disregard for memory, history, and the 1965 Immigration Act. In an op-ed uh, for the New York Times, immigration policy analyst, analyst David J. Breyer explains, quote, the Immigration of National and Nationality Act of 1965 banned all discrimination against immigrants on the basis of national origin. He goes on to argue, if Mr. Trump can legally ban an entire region of the world, he would render Congress's vision of unbiased legal immigration a dead letter. Here at a conference of writers, Breyer's legal term, dead letter, should have significant, if not chilling, resonance. What good is a monument if it does not remind? Perhaps the monument's flaw is that it does not remind enough. Perhaps the problem with monuments is, as Dan Vera uh, argued last night at AWP's Latino Caucus, that monuments are frozen, quote, frozen history. Or perhaps the issue is that monuments like Ellis Island celebrate inclusionary acts rather than honestly and critically remembering a much more complicated history of discriminatory and exclusionary practices 
set in place by our U.S. immigration policy. Indeed, perhaps our immigration monuments should really celebrate the resistance to such immigration policy. The need for the 1965 Immigration Act suggests that such ideals of inclusion are far, are far from universal givens, but rather rights that are fought for and won because of transgression. Immigration historian Erica Lee explains that the 1965 Immigration Act overturned close to a century of discriminatory immigration policy. That policy began with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, barring all Chinese immigration except for the exempted classes of students, teachers, diplomats, merchants, and travelers. The law also prohibited Chinese immigrants from naturalized citizenship. Thus, the act aimed to exclude Chinese laborers and keep out Chinese immigrants with intentions of staying on and settling within the US. The law reinforced the earlier Page Act of 1875, stipulating the exclusion of not only contract laborers or coolies, but all Chinese laborers, skilled and unskilled. Originally instituted for a 10-year period, the act was renewed in 1892 and passed again in 1902 without a terminating date. With its passing, the act began what would be six decades of exclusion until the law was finally repealed with the passing of the Magnuson Act in 1943. Turning our attentions west and across the country from Ellis Island toward the San Francisco Bay, we encounter another island and immigration narrative entirely. Despite the fact that it was once referred to as the Ellis Island of the West, Angel Island, an immigration station that operated from 1910 until 1940, was built specifically to detain and deter Chinese attempting to enter under the strict Chinese exclusion laws. Curiously, while Angel Island is a national landmark, it is not a national <coughs> monument. And yet its narrative should be remembered for the racism and bigotry at the very foundations of our immigration policy history and for the resistance to that history. Specifically, in regards to our panel and this writers' conference, Angel Island should be remembered for two collaborative acts of written resistance. The first are the poems etched into the walls at Angel Island by the detainees. First found in 1970, 30 years after the closing of the immigration station by park ranger Alexander Weiss, the over 200 Chinese poems carved into the walls at Angel Island chronicle the difficult voyage across the Pacific and reflect on the rift between the promises of social and economic inclusion and the realities of racial exclusion. 135 of these poems are collected and translated in the vital anthology, Island, Poetry and History of Chinese Immigrants on Angel Island, 1910 to 1940, edited by him, Mark Lai, Jenny Lim, and Judy Young. The transgressive power of writing on walls is in part due to the fact that the reader must stand in the very position the writer stood. Reading the Angel Island poems, one continually finds poems that comment on other poems and thus point to the radical empathy and the radical call to memory within the wall poetics at Angel Island. Quote, my fellow villagers, seeing this should take heed and remember, one poem begins. I write my wild words 
to let those after me know. Within these poems, we find that the detainees have much to say to each other and those coming after them, thus testifying to a solidarity constructed in response to their shared experience of exclusion and alienation. Far from dead letters, the walls themselves become a kind of forum by which immigrants shared their experiences and ultimately constructed community. The second written act of resistance is deeply resonant with my own experience because it has to do with my own name. An estimated 90% of Chinese immigrants entering the US during the exclusion period were using false papers. The most popular method was the using of, of a paper name, claiming to be the foreign-born children of Chinese immigrants who were already US citizens. These individuals assumed a false identity and became paper sons or daughters. Discussing the significance of paper identities in her book, Paper Families, Identity, Immigration, Administration, and Chinese Exclusion, the scholar Estelle T. Lau explains, quote, adoption of these techniques was not without long-term consequences for the Chinese. They were forced to change their names, adopt fictitious family histories, and maintain their deceptions over time until these fictions themselves became inescapable elements of the stories the Chinese told about themselves. My grandfather, Yao Sisan, crossed the Pacific and immigrated to this country in 1928. It was during the period of Chinese exclusion laws, so my grandfather, like many other Chinese, used a false last name and identity to claim he was the son of a US citizen. He exchanged his last name, Ong, for the name Psalm, the name we use today. Neither dead letter nor an obsolete monument, my last name, Psalm, a paper name, an act of survival under and resistance to the exclusion acts, is for me a reminder of the unjust precarity, the uncertainty, citizen, not citizen, belong, don't belong, that some are continually forced to live solely because of their race, religion, gender, sexuality, and or nationality, identities that have been and should continue to be protected from discriminatory legislation and execution. Ex excuse me, execution. I'm sorry. <laughs> I need to take a drink of water. Discriminatory legislation and executive action is what I wanted to say. <laughs> Forgive me. Paper sons and daughters, as they crossed the ocean, had coaching papers to help them memorize their new names and identities. These papers were tossed overboard before entering port and, fa and facing immigration officials. I'm going to close today with a poem um, from my book, The Tribute Horse, a, a book that engages with the history of Angel Island and paper sons, and a book which I hope continues the tradition of written acts, immigrant acts of resistance under this current administration and its unjust discriminatory practices. Uh, the poem I'll read attempts to recover those coaching papers, um, uh, kind of an imaginative recovery and, and listening in, in the ocean's waves uh, for my grandfather practicing, practicing his new name. Coaching papers. Said my name was a sennet, torqued by pitch and drawn closed. 
said aloud, my name swallowed me. Aloud, my name kept me in its net. Nights, I hauled the wet nets, names silent and breathless across my desk. Nights, I mended trawling tears. I took needle and thread to names. The sea types in italics, voices analogued in the archive. Sound bites, ship sank or shore tossed. Babble for the gleaner. Bowsprit with tin ear, I dove and scissored a broom tail, long as the breath my lungs held, long as the vow, vesseling vow. Breath to blood, breath fathom me. At sea, paper turns to slurry, the pulp's knit slips in the eddy. Above are bare-knuckled stars, Hercules' keystone, archer's teapot. The sea calms and flatlines a blank, sign here or breach and breathe. Fiddle slack, the mute knot, I sift spin drift for sound's wave. At sea, a boy recites a name. The sea records it in waves. Psalm, aspirate, vowel, liquid, is a vessel of wind and water. On swells, the bow dips and rises like a pen signing the horizon. Psalm, aspirate, vowel, liquid, there is a sea on the coaching pages. The first page was lent left after sifting and drying clothes, washed in a river whose length stretched so far, some claim the Milky Way for its source. A laundry boy when he first came over, father said of his father, trying to make a dollar. Other sources cite hive makers, with its wood grain mache, pulp and slur, a wasp masons, utters what it gnaws, walls it say. All good nests recite their trees, crack a hive's hymnal and read the spackles, small mouth print, written right in that echo, that alphabet. The sea salts away a semblance of the names in its siblings. Waiting wave break or hunting rack line, we are in earshot of the sea reciting. Nearing port, the sea is a rehearsing of names, but shore-torn and reassembled into unnamed sound and syllable. A name goes searching for breath, aligning the sextant of its shape with the plane of the written page. I am charting a written name, reading aloud a manifest of sons, marked citizen, reciting to sound out again the purchased names, to hear what silence stowed away. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brandon. Um, I think that many of you will probably have questions and um, want to ask more about all of these wonderful panelists. Uh, so what we'll do is we'll have each panelist present, and then hopefully we'll have a few minutes at the end of the, the panel to ask questions and have a little discussion. Um, our next panelist is Amy Cesara, and uh, she's a Filipino-American poet, playwright, and performing artist based in Oakland, California. Her accomplishments include a Willow Award finalist book of poems, Souvenir, 
a YBC Away Award and um, is it a Rojo Spirit? A Rojo Spirited Woman Award. She's currently in the Faculty of Language Arts at Deonta College. Please welcome Amy Cesara. Hi, everybody. So uh, I've called my, my remarks thingification in contested places. My focus will be on the contested space of the archipelago nation of the Philippines, its colonization by the United States after the colonization by Spain, and the reification or thingification of place and people. So just to kind of put those vocabulary words up, I had come across the word thingification and looked it up and it led me to these three definitions that I'll let you hear. Thingification is the action or process of turning something into a thing equals reification. Reification is to consider an abstract concept to be real. And then one that we're more familiar with, objectification, which is very related the action of degrading someone to the status of a mere object, when people treat others like objects or as nothing more than their physical bodies. So I'm gonna share a couple images um, and some poetry. So this will be sort of a woven poetry essay talk. And this first image I've projected, I just want you to kind of take it in. Um, there's some text at the bottom that you may not see that says the Filipino's first bath it says, President McKinley, oh, you dirty boy. And the water, the, along the curve of the water, it says civilization. I'm not sure if you've seen this image before. Actually, raise your hand if you've seen this image before. So this was on a popular magazine cover, Judge Magazine. And um, I'll explain a little bit of the history in a moment. The next image is from the 1904 World's Fair of which um, a lot of my poetry is centered. I'll come back to this one, and this is uh, one of the tickets that describes the different tribes and villages. And I'll stop here for a moment. This poem is called With Compliments, and it was written to this image, which at the bottom it says, information wanted. Uncle Sam, now that I've got it, what am I going to do with it? This is uh, June 11, 1898. Uncle Sam's angular hands curve round black bum. Ankle bracelets of bronze jangle to the rhythm of kicks and sobs. Lipstick lips outline black open mouth. Viscous tears snake over ebony cheeks, over garland of broken shells, over poor Philippine baby kinky hair and bulbous head, rocking, rocking, paper flapping on a thread like a flag or a morgue tag. Philippines with compliments of Dewey. 
So I picked this one to, as the first poem um, because it exemplifies the reification of the idea of the helpless child or subject needing colonization. It shows a recycling of racist tropes and the conflation of place with person. And this is from my actual research trip to the, the World's Fair exhibit in St. Louis. Um, and there's a short poem that I'll accompany this. It's called Philippine Souvenir Card Number One, and it's based on this card. Nine of Hearts. Upon a calabao, I sit, tilling the perpetual rice paddy of your imagination. Legs astride, barefooted, painted into position. My brim hides my face. You, viewer, would think I have no features, my skin only black like the calabao. We stare eyelessly. Who are you to shuffle me into order, bid me away in games, assign me to a number, a suit? My heart thrums beneath the starched yellow shirt. I cannot breathe for its strict collar. Every day I wake to till the same stereotype of a field. It's barren now, no rice left to fill your plates, only this vision of a man. You think you've succeeded in capturing me, the way I brace my calabao with ring, with whip. In 1898, the United States purchased the territory of over 7,000 islands of the Philippines from Spain in the famed Treaty of Paris after the Spanish-American War. Actually, I'll go back to that one. The often overshadowed Philippine-American War of 1899 to 1902 with continued fighting for many years later. And in 1904, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition commemorated the Lewis and Clark Expedition and the westward expansion in the United States. Opened its doors, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition opened its doors in St. Louis. This largest exhibit of living people and their replicated habitat was the Philippine Reservation a 47-acre land, including at least, uh, at least 1,200 Filipinos taken for their tribal la lands and arranged into ethnological types, such as Igorots, Negritos, and Moros. Dog eating became a very popular show performed by Igorot tribes, winning many exhibits, uh, many awards. The curation of people and their artifacts goes further back. There were other world's fairs, and you may have heard of, and also Philippine expositions, specifically one in 1887 in Madrid that was also showing Filipinos to be savage-like in need of colonial rule by Spain. We can look at an interesting feature of the preparation for the fair at the Belibid prison in 1903, where anthropologist Daniel Folkmar produced plaster busts of those imprisoned that the Spanish had imprisoned as heretics and rebels. U U.S. curators were sent to collect casts of skulls and the objects taken from warfare. In studying the various concerns of the curation of the objects and people for the fair, one can find that there were disputes over things like this, whether they were too civilized, too savage, whether they should be mixed or separated, and what kinds of messages would come out to the visiting American public. This is just a section of example of some listings that I gathered from the museum. Catalog of objects. One bahag, one skirt, one beaded bag, two beaded necklaces, three carved statues of the rice god, one set of Filipino playing cards. Two bontok headhunters, one Visayan girl, one geisha girl, 
one Eskimo family, one hoochie-coochie girl. Bones and casts of heads became equivalent to objects of war. When brought to the USA, they were representative of these islands, which were also thingified on their own, grouped artificially and culturally codified. We could see the ideas of representation of a nation. So for example, they, one of the reasons they could not appear too savage was that then they wouldn't appear to be fit for being given rights. They must be malleable, they can become assimilated, but not so assimilated, so as not to represent a helpless population, not too smart or educated. And then, of course, they had to consider the spectacle of the fair. The popularity of the exhibit demonstrated that spectacle and profit became more important than the subtler ideas originally conceived. This is a poem that I won't read right now, but just show you that is called In the Laboratory of the St. Louis World's Fair and shows um, was about basically the measurement of the people that were displayed. Considering the various groups from around the world, there was also the interest of, keep, of keeping people from different parts of the world separated behind the scenes so that they wouldn't ruin the illusion of authenticity. So I'm interested in how do bodies become contested spaces as well when they are thingified? So my closure, or my last portion, is actually a poem that I wrote as part of the essay um, based on this topic, and it's called The Thingification Poem. One, when does a person become a thing, a thing of usage, a thing of use, a useful thing, that is to say you can become useless, no longer of use? When does his or her habitat become a container, a receptacle, a map, a target? That is to say, locatable. That is to say, navigable. That is to say, a place to wear and discard like a suit or fill with your waste or destroy. When does place become playground, become festival, become fair, a temporary resort full of toys, machines designed for human thrill, adventure, the objects of your desire, all within safe confines of its walls and gates? When does home become not refuge, not safe place, not comfort and bed, but war zone, trespassed, delineated and marked, become market, taken, become territory, become prison? When does your place become displaced, become replacement, become replica, become recipe invented for human consumption? When does home become demonstration, become demonstrative, become monster? When does home recreated no longer resemble home? Where do you go then? Two. Through the incantation of our names, even the replaced ones, can we stave off the ossification of our bodies, our homes, our bones, like coral reefs that have lost their life. And yet, despite the changes in sea temperatures and levels, these reefs become fossils. Tourists will continue to swim, mistaking graveyard for living aquarium. I tell you this as my voice becomes vessel, becomes bloodline, becomes flood, becomes nectar, to retrieve the disappearance of me and my islands into thin map trace, into dream, into ghost. Three. The colonial subject is object, is thing. Our bodies and lands, the reification of the abstractions of empire. We have become things before, and we can become things again. We were always things, and yet we were never things.
So I leave you with an image of Tugmena. This is uh, a Suyuk girl whom I felt was, when I was coming through the pictures of people who were displayed on the World's Fair, I felt she was returning the gaze. And she became a part of the image of my book cover. And so she's very special to me. How can we, or are we, able to restore humanity to a person objectified? Can I even imagine her actual humanity? Am I only imposing just as others have imposed? Am I repeating the past by revisiting the monuments of history? Or can I create a new narrative? Thank you. Thank you, Amy. I'm going to take out your flash drive if that's okay. Actually, it's okay. We'll do it later. Um, poet Hyde Erdrich is author of seven books, including Curator of Ephemera at the Museum for, at the, at, sorry, at the New Museum for Archaic Research, which is 2017, and National Monuments, 2008. She also makes poem films with fellow Ojibwe and indigenous artists. Hyde teaches in the low res MFA program at Augsburg College. Um, Hyde, I'll give you this image and you can click over to okay. Thank you. Sure. Oh, it's not showing. Hello, good morning. I'm the one who uh, comes and does the informal stuff between the smart people. <laughs> and um, I'm also proof that you can go to AWP and wake up shaky and dehydrated without having a single drink. <laughs> so um, I'm not feeling my greatest today. Part of me thinks it's because of the vague um, you know, almost mythic goo that is so close. I feel like, you know, one of the elves <laughs> that I'm, my, I'm diminishing, my light is diminishing by proximity to evil. <laughs> so forgive me for um, swigging in between things, but I'm super dehydrated. I'm going to start by talking about something I don't know a lot about, which is, if anybody knows me, is not uncommon. I'm a, a scam and a dilettante. Um, but I, a charlatan by trade, um, but I want to say that it was really great to hear Brandon and Amy, who I've been able to present with before, um, and I want to at some point touch a little bit on the commonalities. Uh, I had immigrant grandparents who I never knew, but they came through Ellis Island, and it's often amazed me that there is this like national awareness of the actual place my biology and half started from. And uh, the other half was all just ragtag folks who came over the border or who were here originally, um, indigenous people, Ojibwe and other people who were, were here. Um, and I'll talk eventually about a poem I wrote for a state park rather than a national monument and the relation between state parks and national monuments. But I'm gonna be begin, begin by reading from my book, National Monuments, which uh, came about when I was looking at the country and wondering about the obliteration of the people who were here, the millions of people who were here in this uh, hemisphere, 
before European contact and before European um, colonization and contest, and how little is left physically. And it made me wonder, did all these vast, diverse cultures simply not create monuments? Uh, was there an aesthetic against it? Was there something about us that made us not create the sort of monuments? Or was everything, you know, erased? Uh, how little is left was a curiosity to me. And it turns out it was a curiosity to others. Uh, as I began to research, I realized that our bodies were our monuments. Our nationhood is built in our bodies. Our bodies are our national monuments. Something I have a lot in common with Amy's um, treatise about, uh, and I began to look at bodies and bones and how uh, European-based cultures tend to uh, display indigenous bodies and bones. So a lot of the poems in here are about that. But when I got done with the book, I realized I never wrote a, a title poem called National Monuments. So I went back, wrote the poem, and it's about sort of like the anti-monument. National Monuments, low house of rough bark, small enough for a fairy, delights my sight until it's clear it covers a grave. And worse, it's stained deck red, shingled with asphalt. Some park official has kept up what was meant to moss and rot and fall. Grave houses, clean, clanned, marked, sturgeon scratched into pine, simple lines of eagle or marten, whiskered totems, some on crosses. Other tribes carve headstones. Six nation eel flips an infinity of its tail. Bear tracks tell complex genealogy, map land and tongue and history to cranes, stick legs, and turtle shell. Totem signs, national markers, the body makes from being born that speak your only, only name, your last word, etch, kept, engraved. So that's a different concept of national markers that comes into my thinking. Um, Bears Ears National Monument is a new uh, monument that Barack Obama signed into being, and it is under assault, of course, as, um, as uh, anything that Obama did is uh, the concept, the, the language around Bears Ears is very interesting to me because I took part in an anthology that's just come out called Edge of Mourning, which includes uh, po poets and artists in support of Bears Ears National Monument. And we got letters from Tory House, where our publisher is, uh, about how we can use Bears Ears and um, Edge of Mourning to support what is happening. And uh, it was like a 48-page letter, but uh, she asked us to look at the resolution that asks the current president to rescind the monument, and it's loaded with falsehoods and racism from the Utah State Legislature. So when things started happening in Utah last night, I was amused. Uh, there's, you know, like I said, there's 28 pages to it, but I'm going to just read you some, some little things that I find of interest. The Senate president said it's absolutely wrong. The legislative process was circumvented one, with one person's pen via presidential proclamation. The 1.35 million acre monument was created in late December by former President Barack Obama. In the waning days of his administration, it was a poke in Utah's eye. 
Obama was vacationing in Hawaii with his family over the holidays when the White House made the announcement, December 28th. And then this is a quote from uh, Senator Todd Weller, Republican from Cross, Woods Cross, Utah. I find it insulting that President Obama couldn't even interrupt his golfing in Hawaii for the monument designation. Um, so the, there are also Democratic opponents to the legislation that say it fails to uphold the public lands initiative to gain traction. And the basis of their argument is that they feel that not enough people were consulted. And here's a quote from um, one of the folks. Grassroots people who depend on this landscape every day would like the opportunity to explain why we have worked so hard and so long to create this first ever Native American national monument that honors our history and points toward our future. The reason they think they weren't consulted is because they are not the five Native nation-led coalition that lobbied for this monument. It was not state. It was a tribal coalition of many people, which apparently doesn't count um, as part of Utah. Uh, one of the last things they said was that when it was the proposal came in seven years ago to the president, it came at the behest of local elders. The language around what is happening with the monument now claims that land management and other planning organizations were shut out or ignored. Um, critics say that the Native American tribal movement behind the Bears Ears campaign um, support was co-opted by environmental observation and other conservation organizations uh, with, wrapped with a distinct cultural bow. So I bet there were paid protesters there somewhere too. But that is what's happening around Bears Ears and it's happening very quickly and we'll see what happens. But one of the things that in um, the vast memo that we're looking at and trying to uh, educate ourselves on was the fact that uh, there is no language in the Antiquities Act, which helps to f uh, the presidents proclaim national monuments. There's no language for any way to undo them. There is no undoing, as far as anybody can tell. So there's, you know, we're hopeful that there is not at present any undoing. Um, of these monuments because they do protect us. But I have a complex relationship to these national monuments and the national park system too for a reason that I'll tell you in a little bit if you want to. Oh, there's a picture of bear's ears, which I've never seen. I'll see it in October. This image, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there's a bigger version of it. You can oh. go up a little bit. There you go. And I'll tell you a little bit about a project that I was given, and I'll, final, I'll read a poem in the end. Um, sometime, about the same time that Amy or Chris and the group started this, talking about this panel, I was asked to add my poem, uh, commissioned poem, to a project called Imagine Our, Par Our Parks with Poems from the Academy of American Poets and the National Park System. And at first I objected. I said, you know, I don't know what this is going to be like. There's this weird relationship between Native people and, and parks. And uh, they said, well, several other indigenous and Native writers have agreed to write poems. I said, well, my poem might be a little, you know, contesty. And they said, yeah, it's fine. You know, so I started to try to explain how I look at uh, Parks, not just in the state that I live in or the state I grew up in, not just by my national lands, my reservation, 
but the whole map of the national park system, which follows in almost exact mapping the recession of lands by treaty and the removal of native nations. It, if you look at where the parks are, it's where my people were and pushed further west. Um, so I began to think about how would I express that? How would I map the parks? How would I look at them? How would I read this as a map of removal? And in looking at it, I saw that there are parks that are not parks, which we've already talked about. There are, um, there are bodies of water that you can't really walk on, but that are part of um, national designations. And there's a trail, uh, which really literally does cover the treaties, the treaty path of the Ojibwe people that I'm descended from and that I am a member of a nation. And I thought I would look at that trail. And as I was looking at that trail, I discovered an image. And it looked familiar, so I asked my sister, Lise Erdrich, who's a, the historian in the family, um, why is this image important to me? And she said, look at the priest. Almost in the middle, there's a man in a black robe next to a minister with a white beard. I don't know if you can quite see it. And behind him is a young boy, the only boy in the picture. He's wearing white, and that person is my great-great-grandfather as a young boy in 1870. And he had left home with this priest to serve as his altar boy, but family legend is that he just wanted adventure. He was a good hunter and a good helper with the hunt. He'd been bison hunting since he was five years old. And he, Kishkemanishu was his name, Joseph Gorno was his English and Catholic name, uh, wanted to be the standard bearer, to carry the flag for this priest. For him, it was a designation like carrying an honor staff in a native culture um, and in the Plains Ojibwe culture of my people. So he was able to do this. I put this note with this image uh, on the American Poets page with the National Park System. And this is what I said. The North Country Trail leaves Minnesota and heads toward Fort Abercrombie, just above my hometown, Wapaton, North Dakota. This poem envisions the tall grass prairie as I have seen the last remaining swaths of it in areas of the trail. The poem depicts, depicts events that took place when the grassland was unbroken and when our great-grandfather, Kishkamanishu, Joseph Gorno, serving as an altar boy and standard bearer for a Catholic priest was photographed in 1870. The path of the North Country Trail traces from Lake Superior Shore through the North Dakota grassland, maps the migration of my Ojibwe ancestors as they moved and were removed from their territories as treaties decreed. For me and for other Native Americans, a map of the trail tells a specific story, one of tribal history. The grassland stands as emblem of peace for me, the hush of wind and tall grasses, the surprise of wild roses and rare lilies, the open faces of sunflowers and fields, the prairie potholes where water is life and the home of thousands of birds. This peace, like the weather wooden structures of previous centuries, remains for everyone to walk along in this western section of the North Country Trail. So I'm going to read Peace Path real quick. This path our people walked 100, 200 endless years since the tall grass opened for us and we breathe the incense that sun on prairie offers to sky. Peace offering with each breath, each footstep, 
out of wood to grasslands, plotted with history, removal, remediation, restoration, peace flag of fringed prairie orchid, green glow within white froth, calling a moth who nightly seeks the now rare scent, invisible to us, invisible history of this place where our great-grandfather, a boy, beside two priests and 900 warriors, gaze intent in an 1870 photo, his garments white as orchids. Peace flag, white banner with red cross, crowned with thorns, held by a boy. At the elbow of a priest, beside Ojibwe warriors, beside Dakota warriors. Peace offered after smoke and dance and Ojibwe gifts of elaborate beaded garments thrown back in refusal by Dakota warriors, torn with grief since their brother's murder. This is the path our people ran through white flags of prairie plants, Ojibwe calling Dakota back to sign one last and unbroken treaty, peace offering with each breath, each footstep, out of woods to grasslands plotted with history, removal, remediation, restoration, to Dakota held up as great men, humbled themselves to an offer of peace before a long walk south, before our people entered the trail walking west and north, where you can walk now, where we seek the source, the now rare scent invisible as history, History, the tall grass opens for us. Breathe the incense of sun on prairie. Offer peace to the sky. Thank you. Thank you, Hyde. Um, Kevin Prufer is the author of six books of poetry and the editor of numerous anthologies, the most recent of which are Churches in a Beautiful Country, National Anthem, New European Poets, and Literary Publishing in the 21st Century. Um, his forthcoming book of poems, which I'm looking forward to, How He Loved Them, will be, will be published by Four Way Books in 2018. Prufer is also editor-at-large of Pleiades, co-curator of the Unsung Master Series, and professor in the creative writing program at the University of Houston, and a low residency MFA at Lesley University. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us. I can go back to um, either Trump Tower or... Oh, please not Trump Tower. <laughs> I'm going to um, back into this subject. I was, I, I'm, I'm the last minute replacement for Craig Santos Perez, so I wish I could have also heard... Um, um, oh. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to enter this, this backwards a little bit and then conclude with a poem. So um, some time ago at an AWP in the um, distant past, uh, I had been asked to talk a little bit about what sentimentality meant. And um, so I went home and looked it up in the dictionary. And what I found in the dictionary and in my dictionary of literary terms is that sentimentality is the overabundance of emotion applied um, inappropriately to a contrived situation. Um, just about every um, definition I found had some version of that in it. And, um, and somehow that seemed uh, off to me. Uh, 
and I finally discovered why that seemed off to me when I encountered a, a, a really sentimental um, Victorian ditty um, called Come Home Daddy. Some of you might know it. Um, it was a song. Uh, one, one could sing it, though it also presented itself as a poem frequently, uh, in which little Billy, I think is his name, is at home in London dying of consumption while his daddy is off drinking. Um, and every verse ends with little Billy growing increasingly sick, saying, oh, daddy, daddy, please come home. Uh, this goes on for some time while Bill, Billy's mother cries and Billy's sister cries. And eventually, of course, Billy dies. Um, and Billy's dying words are, you guessed it probably, um, daddy, daddy, please come home. It was a, an unapologetically sentimental poem. But the more I thought about that poem, um, the more I thought that it didn't really fit the, dec the dictionary definition of what sentimentality was. Um, there was, uh, for instance, I, I believe that there can be no such thing as an overabundance of emotion about a dying child. Um, I think a dying child uh, contains within it as much uh, emotion <laughs> as I can summon. Um, I also do not believe that that situ situation is necessarily contrived. I think everybody knows of situations like this where a parent, for instance, is negligent or where a society allows a child to die of consumption, um, for instance, um, in situations that might otherwise be averted. Um, so there's no contrivance, there's no overabundance, and there's certainly nothing um, uh, inappropriate about the emotion. So I had to ask myself what a better definition of sentimentality might be. And the definition that I, I came upon for myself was that there's the, the thing that makes a sentimental poem or a sentimental situation sentimental is that it reduces a very complex situation into a single channel of simplicity. The sentimental poem doesn't ask, for instance, what the complex political circumstances are that lead us to a situation in which children might die of treatable um, causes. And it doesn't ask us what the social situation is in which a father might be out drinking, um, or what the familial um, complexities might be that bring us to this, to this end. Um, and as I reframed sentimentality for myself that way, the simplification of a very complex situation into a single channel uh, of, of emotion, I began to realize, for myself at least, that sentimentality is a very dangerous thing. Um, sentimentality is, for instance, what allows us to look at pictures uh, in the American pictures in the 1850s, for instance, of happy slaves um, um, singing um, and dancing, or it allows us to keep women um, in the kitchen. Um, I was initially reluctant to be on this panel about national monuments because that's often been my response to national monuments. Um, that, um, to, to, to paraphrase, I think what Brandon said, they offer us situations of frozen history, or maybe what Amy said, um, they, they allow for thingification. <laughs> that is, they reduce deeply complex American, in, in this case, uh, situations to, um, to, to, to they, they, they reduce them into very simple presentations. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm opposed to national monuments or that I'm going to go out and protest national monuments. 
but that the idea of national monuments seems to me to be one that is simultaneously dangerous, um, um, but, but also an, uh, an opportunity for complex thought. Um, when I was invited to be on this panel, I started reading through as many <laughs> poems that had national monuments as I could find, and I found that the ones that most interested me were those that work in the opposite direction. Um, that is, um, that do what I believe poetry does best. I was asked to write uh, uh, an essay pretty recently about um, politics and poetry for a, a book that, that just came out on that um, subject. And what I decided was that the political poetry that I admire the most is a poetry that has at its center ambivalence. And by ambivalence, what I mean is a poem that feels and thinks strongly in multiple conflicting polyvalent directions. <laughs> that that is perhaps the kind of thing that poetry can do best that um, other art forms can never do quite as well as poetry can do. Poetry has within it, for instance, music that can move us in one direction, images that can move us in another direction, and ideas that can move us in a third direction, asking us always to hold in our mind this sort of multiple conflicting ideas that any really complicated political situation probably inspires in any thoughtful person. Um, and when I read, for instance, Yusef Komanyaka's uh, poem, Facing It, which I think everybody must know, that's what I felt like I encountered, the, that, that opening line, my black face fades, is, um, is a line I think that contains within it such polyvalence of thinking. I found that also in the poems of Martha Collins and Tony Hoagland, and I wanted to read um, one poem, not by myself, um, that I think contains that, and, and, and leave my remarks there at the 10-minute point. Um, it's a poem by Anne Kilo. I don't know if anybody knows her work. I, I think she's completely brilliant, and unfortunately, um, I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen her get the kind of recognition that I think she deserves, but this is her poem, Statue of Liberty. I have to take off my glasses to read it, rendering everybody invisible. Statue of Liberty. And yet, we suspect that our relationship to the Statue of Liberty is not simple that we are expecting something from her which she is secretly no longer providing, that she is actually undermining our entire sense of ourselves, not only collectively, but individually. What do you think? I mean, really? No fair coming up with that stuff about the symbol of our nation or our nation's delusions about its own saintly welcoming qualities or anything to do with France. Think in terms of if aliens had already contacted the Statue of Liberty, and she was receiving transmissions across the whole surface of her copper body, which she was greatly enjoying after all those years of nothing but runny condensations. <laughs> Think in terms of what the aliens might have in mind. Would they care that she was hollow and full of stares? Would they care that she was too big to be happy? So now, what if the Statue of Liberty has found out that she can move and is only waiting for the right moment? What if they're beginning to be words in her book, more and more words on the coppery pages, the ones that do not turn or not yet? What if she's beginning to feel the horror of her position, the way she has no peers or even anyone who understands that she is in the tradition of the enormous destroyer? What is it she's becoming convinced she must destroy? So now picture what you think the Statue of Liberty might destroy and realize that you are not right. That whatever you thought of is not it, or at least not quite it. 
and certainly not all of it, that you have no idea what she is thinking, or at least not a complete idea, that the very nature of her body renders her susceptible not only to alien transmissions, but to all the transmissions on the Earth, that she is a kind of pole along with the north and south ones and draws the magnetic fields of the Earth toward herself like shiploads of huddled immigrants and reads them like ticket tape inside her spiky head, that she feels what you feel, but much more of it, that she sees what you see, but the backside of it as well, the side you will never see, that she has already begun to change something, even in you, even in me, that we already know what that is. Thank you. I just asked Kevin if I could keep this copy of that poem. That was, um, so we have, we have some time for questions. Um, would anyone like to ask any questions of our panelists? Um, or we could just sort of have a free-form discussion, or we could also just call it quits and drink all this water, because I think that Hyde and I both could probably... Yes, over here. Questions? TJ, can we turn this microphone on? Is it a... I, know, I wasn't sure if I was talking into a sound. Actually, both of them. Okay. Yes, right in front. I'm intrigued by the notion of the national parks being a map of displacement of, of Native people, and I just don't know. In my mind, I'm wondering whether the, I sort of have the sense that they were everywhere and, and displaced from more places than just a map, but I don't know. Um, there's a great book called Native Americans and National Parks. I think I've got, I'll, I'll get the exact note for you. Um, but what it explains, federal relationship to lands is very, very complicated, and I will try to nutshell it. Um, with Native peoples, sometimes when treaties were signed, some of the land was retained uh, not for the use of Native people, and as parks and railroads especially began to be designated, uh, it just follows the boundaries of lands that tribes reserved by treaty. So it's like, you think of it as like receding, almost like receding mappings, you know, the whole of the continental U.S. Um, as, you know, Native nations, uh, and then bits of it receding, often along natural geographic lines, parts of it being reserved, and then, you know, you usually see a reservation right next to that national park or really close by. And it's because that was that chunk of the land that even though it was in the treaty negotiations, the, the federal government hadn't 
quite relinquished. And there, some of it by, you know, legal means, but most of it by pretty sketchy means. Um, so that that land, of course, had you know remained untouched, was not purchased or homesteaded by uh, non-natives. So then it was open federal land. Sometimes parkland was leased in 99-year leases from tribes, and it still is. So it's really scary when you hear these calls to open public lands, um, lands that Native people have a stake in. Sometimes a legal stake, often a cultural stake, because it's close to their own remaining, um, our own remaining reserved homelands. So, does that help a little bit? I think, I think I think it's okay. Yeah. I think just uh, back to Bears Ears and the political moment. Uh, we I went to Glacier, you know, National Park last summer, and, and I get the sense that the Native Americans, you know, frustration with not being able to use the parkland for, you know, gathering, hunting, traditional land yeah. use because of the park. Um, and now that that connects to this, uh, you know, this this I bet fellow coalition in a way of hunters. Mm -hmm. and, ears, and I'm wondering if this is a moment where actually the, the killing of animals could be, is, is sort of helpful to environmentalists in a, in a weird way. Well, yeah, I mean, that, there's a, you know, some little soundbite that Jared Kushner likes to hunt, and that's why, you know, but I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you get all that. Yeah, there is, there's a connection. Some uh, state parks have a compact with Native nations, or Native nations have asserted their treaty rights so they can hunt, gather fish on um, park lands. It, it just, it's a case-by-case -case thing, and, and there's thousand cases, you know, so it's, it's really hard to say how, but there is a relationship. There's a cultural relationship, a physical relationship, and it is really complex. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think the, the awareness is great. I think um, if you take all of our comments together, I think the argument is that it, that's only the starting point, though, right? That the that it has to go further. And I think in in my argument and my point is that Angel Island isn't an actual national monument. It's a national landmark, but it's not a monument. And um, you know that led me to kind of reflect on uh, the ways in which it might be kind of a counter narrative. Um, that it, uh, the resistance and transgression that's happening, uh, again, the, the poems on the wall, but also the act of, of paper sons and daughters uh, to uh, transgress those uh, racist exclusion laws, um, suggests to me that um, we have to, as writers, uh, have to memorialize and write about um, these maybe um, lesser known uh, narratives 
or erased narratives um, and have to celebrate these acts of resistance and transgression? Um, can I say something? So, um, I, it's interesting because on a very personal level, when I thought about the whole, the topic of national monuments, my first re response was to think about um, how my parents, when they immigrated here in 1969, their, f their first narratives of arriving were about going to national parks and national monuments. And it was like the American dream embodied for them. And it's something that they didn't have in the Philippines. I mean, land is utilized in different manners and the protected parks and all of that was like, part of their story and then it became part of my story. So I actually, my sister and I, sisters, two of us only, like our imagination about the United States was flavored by being able to visit these natural, a lot of them are natural places and the idea that they're different and separate from usable places that you either live in or work in or do stuff with. So I have a, there's like a positive affiliation with more national parks and national monuments. But then I looked at Grand Can the Grand Canyon was actually designated first in 1908 as a national monument. And I thought, what if the Na Grand Canyon was not preserved the way it is? I mean, if anyone's been there, just the, 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 the idea that humans are naturally going to ruin everything, <laughs> you know, especially right now, the fear that we know that things are gonna get ruined and destroyed and then the, you know, industry would just damage. So that's my kind of basic thing, but I think the question is, you know, tying it in with the thingification and with all this stuff is that, you know, who's at the table, who's making those decisions. Even with the, when I researched the World's Fair, of course the first thought is like, ah, oh, it's horrible, and it, it did turn out to be horrible, but in the earlier discussions, there were some complex discussions that even involved Filipinos at the table that were about like the fear that it would become too much spectacle and people would be you know overly savaged and all of this stuff. But then at the end of the day, capitalism and exhibitionism and all that won over and those people didn't end up making those decisions. At the same time, we always can look back at the times in history like that and say, what was the agency of the people that we can't really know because they weren't documented. When I did my informal poetic research, I had a hard time finding the voices of the people, Filipinos who were part of it. So it's again about, about who's at the table, I think. I'm so sorry, we actually have run out of time, but we, I think we would be happy to talk with you some more further in front if you have any questions. And I, I apologize, I, I'm gonna do a shameless plug. My name is Chris Santiago, and I'm signing books at 1230. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Milkweed table. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.